Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio is my colleague, Niklas Sabos. How are you today, Niklas? I'm all good, thank you. Same here. And in this episode, we are excited to introduce a new format where we invite fund managers and other prominent guests to share insights from their favorite investing-related books. And the idea is that those of you who have not read the book will get inspiration and understand what it's about. And for those who have read the book, we put the content in context to see how it can be applied. So, uh, Niklas, who is the first uh, guest of this format? Our first guest is uh, the brilliant Henrik Andersson, who is managing the Global Equity Fund at Idren Gerje in Stockholm. And is also a founding member of Investing by the Books. Henrik did the interview with uh, William Green, which is our fourth episode of this podcast. Welcome to the studio, Henrik. So, uh, Henrik, how did your passion for investing start? Well, it um, slowly developed over time. Uh, let's put it uh, that way. It, it was the um, second uh, kind of, of, of a passion, where the first one, I guess, is the where you're struck by lightning, and the second one is uh, slowly developed and nurtured over uh, over time. Then, and um, my time with investing or my interest started when I actually gained a tennis scholarship to a university in the US, University of Nebraska. And that's obviously a place where a very famous investor is born and active. So we were um, inspired, especially my, my professors at the school were inspired by his teaching and his investing. And that obviously so sort of fell down on us students uh, at the school. So that's where it all started and has grown since then. And this was in the mid nineties then. And which book have you chosen for this uh, episode? I have chosen the book where uh, the person in mind then Warren Buffett, where his teachings and perhaps his lessons about how to think as an investor is the most clearly articulated, which is essays Warren Buffett by Lawrence Cunningham. And uh, the essays are written by Buffett, but uh, the author of the book is, as you say, Lawrence Cunningham. What's his role? Yeah, uh, good question. It's, it's, uh, I think it's pertinent that we, we bring it up. So the story of the book is actually, it was originally a seminar or a symposium at Cardoso Law School, which is the, um, is the university where Mr. Cunningham was active at the time. So in the fall of 97, they arranged a symposium where law professors and Mr. Cunningham and Buffett and Charlie Munger also took part and they discussed uh, the paper that was written in the Cardoso Law Review, which dealt with corporate governance and how to look upon board membership, how to run a board, how a company should be um, organized, but also what's investing and what's more speculation, actually. So it was it was interesting that it was the legal angle that first started this um, this project, and then post the symposium which is actually to try to find pictures because I, I, know, I know I've seen pictures from, from that particular event, which was uh, actually great, but I didn't find them now before um, this podcast. But um, post, they had this day at Cardoso Law School. Cunningham arranged 
the discussion and the chapters and the conclusions and sort of organized it into um, into a book that was published in '97 and again in 2001 with seven different topics or chapters, which he um, then chose from, from Buffett's writing and his uh, CEO letters. And I actually have to say that the introduction by, by uh, Mr. Cunningham to the book is, it, that, that's a great part. That chapter in of itself is one of the best parts of the book. Uh, and he shows a deep understanding for, for, for Berkshire and for Buffett's thinking, which uh, I think is somewhat unappreciated perhaps in the, in the, in the later uh, years now. And it's not, the final thought I have is it's, it's not that easy, you know, to, it seems like, well, he just chose some, some, some words that Buffett have and, and put it together, but it's not easy to, to, to make it into a, a comprehensive story and, and a well-written book. It's, you know, imagine trying to uh, find hundred clips of Leo Messigols and then make it into a, a, you know, a full movie with a storyline and, and a comprehensive teaching. Uh, not easy, but Mr. Cunningham pulled it off, and I think the book is, uh, is uh, one of the great all-time investment books. Yeah, I, I agree fully, and uh, me and Eddie have uh, later editions of the book. I think uh, five, there have been five, and uh, I think it will be updated until, yeah, as long Buffett lives. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you how, why did you choose this book? Is is this, um, yeah? How do you rank this with other investing books? For me, it's um, top five of all time. I would say we also um, at Investing by the Books we we've discussed and and have done previous rankings of all time great investment books and and so forth, and even organized it bit by classics and modern books and so forth and i think it's it's always been the in the top 10 of those rankings i believe so so for me it's it's um it's a must read it's um a, a great book to not start your investment journey with but after a few years perhaps and then as a as a biannual or or a sequential read over time yeah i think the Praise from Money Magazine that is on the cover of my edition at least uh, sums up this book perfectly. They, they write that it's extraordinary, full of wisdom, humor, and common sense. The book is structured around several pillars, uh, governance, investing, alternatives, common stock, acquisitions, valuation, accounting, taxation, and, and others. Um, but, but if all copies of this book were destroyed, uh, but you could keep one chapter, which one would that be and why? That's a that's a good one. Uh, it's the opposite of what what you're normally asked. What would you throw away if your house was on fire? <laughs> um, but um, I I have to say I I mean I physically remember the first time I read this book, which was actually on a an investment road trip in the U.S. where we um, the summer of 2007, which is the first time I, I read it from cover to cover, and the part about investing that that sort of struck me the most was when he talks about uh, or, or the episodes from from the CEO letters so to speak when he talks about the efficient market hypothesis and beta and risk and what's business and what's you know stock market risk uh, that that 
that discussion because I think like like I said before, this book is perfect for 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 reading from time to time for seasoned investors, but I think the the other group of people that that should read it is the ones that have perhaps done investing for five years, four or five years, you know, gotten introduced to it, they're in business school or have picked up books that talk about risk, you know, the efficient market and so forth. And then read this to get a totally different picture of what business investing means. Because then the, the lessons of the book is so much stronger. And just the um the example he gives in the book where when he talks about beta, you know, it, it just struck me because I've been introduced to that concept and we we try to or my organization that I worked at the time obviously used it. And it was a big part of our risk analysis. But why would a stock that's gone down 50% in the business is, is not impacted be viewed as twice as risky, which is what Beta says then very simplistically. And that chapter, I think, is is, uh, is profound in its impact on, on somebody who's been introduced to EMH. I guess Beta has no idea about the quality of the company and the competitive advantages and so on. So um, I was thinking... Uh... There are many, many ways to emulate uh, Buffett, uh, his style of investing, but also, of course, his investment and business philosophy centered around rational thinking and, and patience. And I wanted to ask you, how, how has his lessons uh, shaped your career as an investor? Well, first of all, uh, I think what, what comes out in the book and obviously in lots of other writings and, and um, speeches and so forth from him is that this book, as with all great investment books, you know, first you learn a lot, you know, you, you underline, you mark, you sort of reread to, to, um, to um, emphasize certain things, but it also puts in, puts you in a frame of mind. You want to be a better investor. You want to be a better person. And this book really does that. And there are a few other investment books that, that do the same upon you as as a person as an investor you don't do the lazy value investing where you look at a p multiple or don't do the lazy growth investing where you think somebody's grown 40 year 40 percent for for two years hence its growth you you want to do the fundamental work and you want to appreciate people running businesses so i think those two um those two or three things is is something that that hopefully is is very present in me you know 20 years later and and as you said in the beginning cunningham has truly done a great service to the investor community by compiling this into a book but the alternative is to read the letters themselves and uh, how do you how do you um, i mean what's the main difference would you say between reading the letters themselves and the book so the book think was the letters from 65 to 96 then or something um, and obviously since then he's he's written quite a bit more and other books and other speeches and so forth have been produced yeah the later editions of the book they include uh, later writings um, but i would say that uh, and it's recommended you know you go to the original source and you read all his letters and you read the read the um the partnership letters and so forth but if you want to start somewhere, you know, three, four, five years into your investment investing career, start with the book and not with the 
all the letters because it's just the letters going into this book is 750 or 800 pages, I think, which is a, quite, a, quite a task. And it's easy to say, it's tougher to do for a 23, 24 year old. You know, and the advantage with the book is the, the, um, how he arranged the different topics. You know, sometimes the letters can be a little bit long and over overemphasized to, to certain things which doesn't make sense and is very um, uh, focused on what's happening at the time or that specific year. I think this book is much better because it, it, it organizes his thoughts coherently around seven different topics, which is the most important seven topics, I would say, of his writing. So it, it gives you a greater summary and a, and a stricter setup. So Yeah, I agree fully. And we had uh, Jeff Graham here uh, on the podcast. And um, he's, of course, an ex- expert in, in corporate governance. And in preparation to that discussion, it was perfect to go into this book and, and read about corporate governance and see, I mean, really what the, the true expert thinks on the subject. And, and I think, yeah, you can do that on, on each uh, pillar of the book actually so it's really helpful um i was thinking also that i mean the 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 book the, the subtitle of the book is actually um lessons for investors and, and managers at least in my edition i i think uh, older editions have, have different lessons for corporate america yeah <laughs> and um i feel like many investors are are trying to emulate buffett and uh Maybe not as many businesses, uh, and I'm I'm a bit curious to know why. And as I know, you're putting a lot of effort into searching for the great companies um, in your fund. I I really can't think of anyone better to to answer the question. Well, puts a bit of a pressure on um <laughs> on a on a person, but um, again, I think it comes comes back to the um we discussed earlier around wanting to be um a better investor and and never taking the the, the shortcuts so I, I try to take those aspects about uh, Buffett's teaching and and this part of the book with me but then also um, perhaps not only finding the, the ones that that are trying to copy Berkshire which it hasn't been that many uh, for sure we have one holding in our fund which is Markel and that's I guess the the, the the company that comes the closest to actually trying to emulate greatness. There has been no other real attempts uh, to do it. So that that's one part. But then also it, it gets to the, the teachings of the book that comes out very clearly in another chapter, which is the decentralization model and the ability to trust the right persons if you emphasize that factor. And it, it's easy to say, well, people change in businesses. I want to invest in in the in the products and, and the longer term and the CEO won't last for five years. Yes, that's true on average, but when you find the companies who are not caught in that mode, who actually have CEOs that last for, for a decade or, or people where it's obvious it makes a difference, then it, it really stands out, stands out from the page. And I think that there's one paper or, or, um, analysis that, that that went through right the, the the most the CEOs with the with the longest 
track of, of, of being CEO, the longevity of a, of a company, have the greatest share performance as well. I mean, if, if you just have a cutoff point at 10 years and then those companies is where you invest, you do better. Obviously, never as simple as that, but really, really trying to take those two concepts, decentralization and, and, and trying to find the great people. We emphasize that even more uh, today than, than 20 years ago when I read the book, because as a young person, you want to have stats, you want to have numbers, you want to have facts. But people can also be people can also be facts. And uh, from from reading the book, I, I thought, um, I mean, studying Berkshire feels like that's really perfection. But um, not many businesses have, have the same qualities as, as Berkshire. And then I'm not thinking about actually um, their style of investing or, um, as, as you mentioned, like similar companies as Markel, but uh, more more the structure and the philosophy. And I was thinking how how to seek perfection but settle for less, as not many companies have the same characteristics. I would actually get back to a um, discussion in the book on that as well, where he talks about share options and so forth, where Obviously, that's a cost, and he goes through if, if it's not a personnel cost, what is it? And if personnel cost is not a something that should be an income statement, what should it be, and so forth. That's that part, and that's totally true. And at one stage in um, in my career, I actually looked upon you know share options as a as a, as a real almost a red flag. But then, and he also talks about EBTA as that that's a lousy measure to to look at profits and you know i think the quote is what do companies expect the tooth fairy to pay for capex or depreciation or something and that's that's also true it's just that it's very hard to to avoid investing in companies with share options and that talk about ebda and he does it himself right he, he never convinced the board of coke or or gillette or Apple to to uh, to uh, get rid of stock options, right? And to speak about EBITDA. So, in that sense, you you want to have again, you want to have a state of mind when you approach something to to try to find it. But if sort of if you reach for the stars, you 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 can go for the clouds, right? And and I think that's what 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 we try to try to find and perhaps weigh the words and the teachings with the reality. And what he also does in reality. So something related to that uh, is mistakes of omission. And uh, that is something that is included in the book. And Munger wrote for the 50th anniversary of Berkshire that almost all huge errors were in not making a purchase. And that had, like at 2014, when he wrote that, it had cost Berkshire Hathaway about 50 billion US dollars. What are your thoughts on that? Like It's also the search of perfection, but also... If, do you have like a systemic approach to that? Not really. I wish I could say we, we do, but I think that uh, realization almost is, is also goes back to the discussion of, of what kind of companies a fund should, should go for. And if you start with a blank sheet of paper, how do you set up a mutual fund or your own? account where, where, where you try to invest in 10 or 15 names and it's the realization that only four or five percent whatever it was actually 
produces 100% of the of the of the results of of uh, alpha versus the S&P. I think it was the best in the study a few years ago, and that went into a lot more details, of course, and it's been post studies and post post studies. But as a generalization, it's very few companies that provide all the the alpha, and just realizing that and trying to find them and hold on to them. That's the sort of search for for perfection or or realizing that missions is 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 the worst thing you can do. And again, our biggest losses have been the companies we didn't buy that that obviously could be the four or five percent rather than the ones we we held on to and and cut short that weren't going to be the four percent of names. So so that I think is is the first or second question we ask when we look at a, at a company can this company be a four percent one or not and that's just trying to 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 uh, avoid some some of the sins of omission but obviously it's it's extremely hard yeah and you said one part is uh the managers and the people and buffett also writes that managing berkshire is prim- primarily a job of capital allocation coupled with the selection of and retention of outstanding managers and you touched upon it a bit but what kind of qualities are you looking for it's uh, i think first of all people you um uh, you admire yourself because it it brings you or gives you the ability to to hold on for for a long time and it, you and i can admire different kind of people or different personalities what i'm attracted to might not be the the the, uh, the things you're attracted to and it doesn't have to be that i like honest people and you like dishonest people or or, or aggressive people you know it, it, it can just be that how they reason and, and and their actions in the past so trying to find people that that um resonate with you and obviously i, I was marinated in the buff the munger glaze whatever uh 20, 25 years ago. So I've I've tried to find people that that remind me of of them. You know, simple, down to earth, good with words, uh, easy to articulate, trust people, and so forth. And obviously, Tom Gainer at Markel is um, one one person that very much reminds me of of uh, of that that sort of personality. Uh, also, Bruce Flat at Brookfield. Another example that sort of it's it's in the same tree of of, uh, of personalities. Yeah, I recognize that as well, and I have have experienced when you see a manager that you really, yeah, this is a person that resonates very well with me and feels very good. But then, what I found out later was that well, he is very nice and everything is working well, but he's not doing that much. And if he would be more aggressive or so on then he would probably push for better results at the bottom line but maybe i mean he's building a, a company for the long run but those kind of situations are really hard i think so we we talked a lot about the good parts of the book and a lot of praise but are there some content and parts of the book that you don't agree with don't agree with might be um uh, so somewhat too, too too harsh of um of a statement but i think the last chapter on on taxation and, and um what, what's the what's the other 
part of that, that chapter. It, it's, uh, it hasn't made that much of an impression on me. The accounting policy and tax matters, right? It's pretty country-specific, I guess. Also. Yes, uh, ex- exactly. And I think the, the, the only part there where is uh, sort of back to where we discussed about um, perfection and so forth, that's when he talks about stock options, among other things. But it's, it's very detailed and it's, um, like you said, US-specific and it goes into examples that are today outdated. They're not timeless. And that might be the... The only drawback from having the legal angle, how the book was was started and produced and and uh, thought about, obviously it was law professors that that had the seminar and had the symposium and then went into how Cunningham organized the book. So I would say to um, if you if you've gotten tired, then the last chapter might be the one to 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 skip. Right, and one part that I thought about is how Buffett is critical to IPOs. And the argument is that the sellers always know more and they put their limping horse uh, on the market a day when it walks. But um, we also know that it's IPO discounts that are made because of stocks. They want stocks to have good intros on the market. And so how are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess all or almost all stocks on the market was once IPO'd. And it's... um, I wouldn't say, you know, at that particular time that the the seller always knows uh, more than the buyer and you can slice and dice those things uh, for for hours and days and weeks if it's good or not to take part of IPOs, right? And you get to different uh, different results, but it's it's more got to do with it's like when an insider sell a company, obviously they think they know more than 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 the buyer because that's when they sell, but there is no clear-cut evidence that, that the insiders do better trades than, than than other people in terms of selling. So it's just looking at, at the situation in itself. Is the offered price something that that I think is within the, the a reasonable valuation range and do we like the business? Then uh, an IPO or a day one of an IPO could be as interesting as any other company on the exchange. Yeah, it's always good to be skeptical, but do your own opinion and do your own work and be have independent thoughts. Yeah, and I, I was also thinking when I when I read the book, I read the letters as well, and I read a lot of about Buffett in yeah before. And uh, sometimes I think his lessons are a bit misquoted. For example, when he says that mergers uh, and acquisitions don't create value, um, but he says. It does in some cases. It's just not on on average. Uh, and I feel I saw the same. Um, I mean, you see the same lessons in 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 other sections as well. Um, I think in IPOs as well. I mean, he, he just says that it doesn't create value on on average or or so on. One one thing we can see is that uh, in twenty twenty one we have seen uh, records in in IPOs and. Yeah, Howard Marks, for example, used to discuss the, I mean, taking the temperature on the market. And uh, Buffett mentions um, in his letter in uh, 2000 that uh, there was a survey in December 99 where retail investors expected ni- 19% annual returns in the future. And uh, we have seen similar surveys uh, today with returns ranging between 
14 and a half and 17 and a half percent. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, and, and then you compare that with, um, I think it's GMO, right? That do do this um, implied return analysis, which they've done for, for a number of years. And, and obviously the last five or six years, they, they, they've seen out of whack with what's actually <laughs> happening and the returns that are actually put forth in the market. But uh, I think the latest one they, they produce is that the only asset class with a implied positive return given historical correlations so forth is emerging market equities, right? And all others are, are below zero. So that's a that's a poor picture for the for the average investor. But I think the reality is perhaps as always it's some some place in the in the middle. I would say over time, I mean obviously an individual company or a stock market or or the the listed world overall cannot overproduce profits and cash flow just because capitalism or or interest rates and so forth are are powerful drivers and there there's capital all over right they just cannot the world cannot tomorrow produce 20% return on equity just because that's where where the market is right so at some point people will realize that we have borrowed our returns for the next 10 years or our kids returns or or whatever it might be because the the weighing machine of companies producing profits it's it's uh, it's what it is right so the um, the 10 12 that that everybody has gotten used to in the historical measurements uh, i guess won't be there at some point and the longer the markets go up the lower it'll be and i think at this point in time it's 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 hard to argue for more than 5 6% on average for for the, the next decade or so obviously people made positive returns outside of the TMT stocks in the mid 2000s right or the early 2000s so there are always pockets in the market where you can make your turn but i think if you invest in an index fund it's um it's hard to argue for more than four or five percent from here. Yeah, and that's something that's interesting because in the book, uh, Buffett is pretty skeptic to active management of funds, and he is making the ten-year bet of holding uh, S and P five hundred instead. What are your thoughts on that? Like, yeah, it's um, some people have gotten quite emotional about that, and I think he's, he's betraying the, the active management part of the of the classroom i would just say from from um the perspective where he he is today obviously he didn't say this in interviews in the in the 70s or 80s or 90s if, if anybody outside of omaha in, interviewed him in the <laughs> before the 90s but then he argued for like he did in that article the one security i liked the most which was geico Obviously, at that time he argued differently. I think it's from the position he's in now. It's um, it, it you you just have to take that statement. Um, Buffett in the two thousands is that is different from from Buffett in the seventies or or eighties. It's um, it's, it's like with this book. Another point, to perhaps, like to make. It's people have, I guess, grown tired of Buffett and Munger. A lot of people have grown tired of Buffett and Munger, and I, I see that among my friends and so forth. But it's just, this is, you know, 
this is Pelé in the 60s, not the one that, that played in the New York Cosmos in 1977. And it's Magic Johnson in, in the Lakers in the 80s, not the one that played in Borås in Sweden in 1990. So two different time areas, two different uh, persons. And this book obviously portrays the, uh, the original Warren Buffett. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Henrik Andersson, for coming on the Investing by the Books podcast and to talk about the essays of Warren Buffett, Lessons for Corporate America or Lessons for Managers and Investors, as it also has a subtitle. Do you have any other book or podcast guest recommendations for us? I would say that a good starting point for, for a book is the, uh, the top 20 list at Investing by the Books. So... Um... I, I, I couldn't imagine a better source of inspiration or, or, or a better learning place actually to, to start with. Great. And uh, where can our audience follow you? We have um, a website. I wouldn't say my employer is, is the um, uh, is, is a company that, that talks about itself uh, a lot. So, um, but the website and then obviously I try to contribute to investing by the books uh, from, from time to time or as much as I can. So that that website is also a good a good starting point, and we do write monthly reports and and um, some little or longer uh, papers about investment topics and so forth. And that could be found at at the website of the Idner Gaga. Great, thank you so much, Henrik. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at RedEye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit RedEye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze and for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.